The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live at California Health, a conference on healthcare policy hosted by Capital Weekly. And the focus of our podcast today is an interview between John Howard and California Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and get started with that in just one second. But first, I want to thank our sponsors of the event. California Health was presented as part of Capital Weekly's California Conference Series. Support for California Health was provided by the California Healthcare Foundation, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Weideman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Okay, so uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with the podcast. We do have our regular Worst Week feature at the end of the episode, so thanks for tuning in. This is professional entertainment. Hello, welcome to our uh, keynote event. Uh, my name is John Howard. I'm the editor of Capital Weekly, and my guest today is uh, Dr. Mark Galley, uh, who's the Health and Human Services Secretary for the state and has been since 2019. And before that, he was, I believe, about 15 years in various leadership roles in healthcare uh, across the state. Um, he's, he has an undergraduate degree from Brown. His medical degree is from Harvard, a school I've heard of, I would think, and his um, MPH is also from Harvard Medical School. Um, he's also a pediatrician <clears throat> and actually still sees clients through a UCLA affiliate down in LA. Uh, and I remember a reporter told me once that reporters and doctors shouldn't be allowed to procreate, but we've both proven that wrong. Uh, Christina Galley um, uh, is also the She's the director of health services, county health services in Los Angeles. So between them, they have health care covered statewide and four children as well. So Dr. Galley, thank you for coming today and joining the conversation. John, thanks and excited to be here. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the first and obvious question is, where are we now in this uh, saga of the pandemic? How are we doing now? Are we ready to turn the corner? Is this thing ever going to end? It seems like it's been going on forever already. What's, what's your take on how, how, how much longer we're going to have to endure this? So the classic crystal ball question, hard to answer. I can tell you now that um, California, like much of the nation, much of the globe, is in a good place. Uh, that uh, our effective number that many of you have learned to track with us, when it's above one, it means that the Transmission is expanding, and when it's below one, it's shrinking, and we have now been below one for some time in California, and that's why you're seeing on our weekly updates uh, the case rates coming down, the test positivity coming down, hospital numbers coming down pretty rapidly. So all good signs. Uh, when you add that to what is one of the nation's strongest vaccine campaigns and now updated boosters available and get it when you can, um, I think it puts us in a good position to deal with whatever COVID throws our way. Uh, the White House recently laid out a plan for 
the fall winter with boosters. And the good news is when we took a look at it here, we said to ourselves, we have a lot of this planned already through the smarter plan that the governor put out in February, which really kind of focused on the basics of COVID, but also uh, awareness and preparedness that uh, our investments in our uh, sort of history with this squirrely disease uh, has, I think, put us in good shape. So I can't say that the corner is turned. I can tell you that California is as well prepared as anywhere for whatever comes next. Do we have to worry about some of these other uh, maladies that have surfaced lately? Uh, New York State talked about a, uh, declared a state of emergency for polio. Um, and we've even had monkeypox now, people talking. Do we have to worry about that? Well, I mean, certainly with um, Mpox, uh, uh, we have been very worried. Uh, we declared our own public health emergency here in California. We've been working closely with our counties. The good news is that our current projections are that that are effective for Mpox is actually below one. So we're seeing cases, week-over-week uh, -week cases shrink. Uh, and our vaccine campaign has been fairly successful. A number of counties uh, who've reported cases have enough vaccine are getting it into high-risk, susceptible communities. So the point is, we have an infrastructure in California that well positions us for whatever comes. But you're right, John, we're seeing things that we didn't expect to see. And uh, there's a lot of theories for why that's the case. Obviously, uh, uh, rates of vaccinations for vaccine-preventable diseases is really important, uh, something that our Department of Public Health is focused on. The nature of um, our world, that it's a smaller world than it's ever been before. People move and travel, that the risk of uh, picking something up on a, on a trip to a different part of the world is real, and we stand and need to be continually prepared for that. So whether it's polio or MPOX or COVID or the next thing, um, we're, we're watching it pretty closely. And then when you layer on the uh, impact of climate change, and the real change in our environmental forces around the state, things that maybe were much more rare a decade ago, were seen in higher numbers today. And that, of course, is concerning and requires us to do what the governor did in the budget uh, a year ago, which was put $300 million ongoing in uh, public health for the state. We've got, um, thus far, uh, two vaccinations and two boosters and another coming out. What's, what's your best advice as a doctor? Uh, should we sign up and take another shot? Or? Uh, my advice is yes, especially if you're in um, a vulnerable population, somebody who's older, somebody who uh, has underlying conditions, someone who lives or works with any one of the most vulnerable Californians. And then, if you look broadly, that's pretty inclusive of all of us. So, of course, my response is going to be, if the time is for you to get a, that updated booster, and I met some people in the room who've already done so just in the last week, um, certainly our advice is to go do that. Even young people like me maybe should get another one, do you think? Yeah. Anyone a little younger should maybe, okay. uh, you know, question, of course, John, you and people much younger than you yeah. should consider. I just hate being part of the vulnerable population. I don't like being described as vulnerable I mean, all the time. You know. um, the, the numbers, very quickly, 
about 11.2 million cases, uh, COVID cases in California thus far. This is according to the LA Times coronavirus tracker, which is over a fourth of the population. Uh, although they may be repeats, that may be another issue. There are 95,000 deaths approximately. And about 80%, at least, uh, about 80% of the population has had at least one vaccination. Many may have had more. Are those figures going to hold as we go forward? Do we see the same level, same vaccination level, same proportionally numbers of deaths? Or Yeah, I mean, this is a really important question. Uh, and where I sit today, very different than where we were two years ago. Um, the number of cases is important, but it isn't sort of the most important number. That number of deaths, obviously, what we set out to do in California was save lives. Uh, we think comparatively that we've done that because of the interventions, but we want to do all we can to make sure 95,000 doesn't grow. And then to your question about boosters, very proud of the booster or sorry, the vaccine effort in California. However, with more and more information, we know if you were quote, fully vaccinated a year ago, but haven't gotten a booster, or if your first booster or only booster was eight or 10 months ago, that your level of protection is waning and it's being reduced. So that's why when you ask the first question, should you go out and get it? Um, the answer to that is yes, because we're learning more and more that it doesn't just matter how many vaccines you've had, but when was your most recent one or when was your last infection? Because that's where you get the most current protection. Okay. Should we expect then to get another vaccination a year down the road, another a year after that? Is this going to be a regular yeah, thing? Do you think? There's a lot of conversation and debate. The CDC is weighing in on that, and I think it's still yet to be determined. But certainly, I think we're heading towards a picture where uh, having boosters and uh, vaccinations, not unlike some other. Uh, illnesses that we protect ourselves using vaccinations for could be in the cards. Mm -hmm. um, just switching gears for a second, um, Medi-Cal has about 13 million clients now. So a third of California's population is, is covered uh, medical services through Medi-Cal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I heard a description of Medi-Cal that it's almost like near universal health care. California is in that mode. Do you think we're going to have full universal health care at some point? This is your crystal ball question. Yeah. Again. Well, I mean, first off, to all the advocates and stakeholders, the health leaders um, across the state for decades, we've made incredible progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've implemented the full set of options under the ACA. We've done coverage expansion uh, in the state for people who fell outside of the ACA eligibility requirements. Um, when we look at what uh, 2024 might bring, we think that it's going to be maybe 5-7% of Californians who don't have uh, clear coverage and access to care. Uh, that's a pretty tremendous effort. That said, we still have work to do. Um, and that work, even though it's shrinking, is very important because every life that's covered matters. And so uh, I would say it's an accurate description to say California has near universal coverage, but we still have a little work to do. Um, recently, very, very recently, the care court package mm. emerged. Can you tell us exactly what that is? This week, uh, Ziegert's panel on, got into this, our second panel of the day got into this. 
Um, but I had a couple questions about it. And basically, what is it? And one question I had, because the coverage, a lot of the media coverage focused on this notion of involuntary commitment. What obstacles, what hurdles are there to requiring that involuntary commitment? How does that go forth? Yeah, first, this is a really important question, and, and I really applaud uh, the governor, the legislature, and others who put forward what is uh, a bold piece of legislation that um, I really think helps support some of the most vulnerable Californians. I know a moment ago we talked about vulnerability based on age or chronic diseases as it relates to COVID. This group of vulnerable individuals are vulnerable because their uh, judgment and insight is impaired due to um, largely either undiagnosed or uncontrolled behavioral health conditions. And when you see that, and many of us see it every single day, we see it when we drive to work, we see it when we're walking to the store, um, individuals who, because of those disorders, um, are on the streets, uh, behaving in ways that are hard to predict and hard to control. And um, we, as a state, have said our current systems that often wait for someone to decompensate so much that they need uh, inpatient locked hospitalization or they're arrested and put in the criminal justice system, that that can't be the endpoint that we accept any longer, that we have to do something beforehand. And we've seen programs, uh, especially on the justice side, uh, have great success with individuals, but it's, uh, it's frankly a tragedy that we have to arrest them first. And so what Care Court really does is try to go upstream, say California's done it before, we can do it again, we can provide a whole suite of services, treatment, medications, support services, clinical supports included, and housing, um, sort of those three pieces to individuals before um, we have to go so deep down the path. And if we can do those, and do those in an engaging way where uh, the courts are really watching out and making sure that our county partners, our city partners are providing those resources and that the individual is engaged in a way that we might see a great deal of success for a group of individuals who is so often overlooked. And I wanted to say that Care Court is pretty specific on who these individuals are. It is not everyone that you can imagine. It's people with specific diagnoses. Um, and, and those diagnoses have clear clinical criteria and need to be verified and supported by a clinician assessment. So we know moving forward, now that this legislation's passed, it's all about implementation. It's all about training. It's all about support. It's all about getting the resources to the table. And I think it's going to be an exciting couple of years seeing how our counties and the state and others really step up to support this group of individuals. Is that, is that the phase-in period, a couple of years? Or are we looking at longer than Yeah, I mean, we have a couple of cohorts of counties. Um, some counties are going as soon as next year. Other counties will um, uh, adopt it the following year. Uh, but we, we do have a couple years of ramp-up. And that ramp-up time gives counties to, time to prepare, gives our court system, our clinical system, time to prepare to really be ready with the resources needed to serve folks. But I will also say that um, every day we miss an opportunity to serve this population better. And so um, you never want to be hasty and, and do things until you're ready. But we do want to have that sense of urgency to get this program implemented across the state quickly. 
given the scope of the dollars involved, is there any room here for the feds to get in here? Can we go to the, I know we do in Medi-Cal already. Well, I, I mean, the good news is that some of the services in CareCord are supported through Medicaid. Some of our conversations with the federal government on what comes next in behavioral health in particular, or with our homelessness crisis, where federal resources, whether it's coming in the form of housing vouchers or SSI payments or Medicaid reimbursement for things that today aren't reimbursable, those conversations are in play and will be really critical and important to bring more resources to this work. Uh, one of the earlier panels today uh, touched on social media mm -hmm. and getting information out about health issues. Um, and it seems to me it's as much a question of misinformation getting out on social media. So, I mean, during the vaccination debate we had a few years ago, um, crazy people sprang out of the woodwork, I think is fair to say, accurate and unbiased way of saying it. Uh, and, I, uh, and I ran into this also, many people ran into this with the, with the vaccination issue. So how do you deal with that, like in a, in a responsible way when you say, somebody who is pro-vaccination is our next dictator, for example. Yeah, a couple of things. And I mean, I'll just take a moment because the champion of that work is Dr. Richard Pan, who's in the room, and he did amazing uh, work for, for our state. Yeah. Um, and as a pediatrician, a fellow pediatrician, um, just really working hard to make sure that access and protection to our communities, not just on the individual level, but our community level is, is supported, I think is really, really important. And that misinformation um, really hurt us during the COVID campaign, if you will, right? We were um, uh, always contending with different pieces of information, some of it uh, not well supported by the science and the evidence Yet, because it was out there on a social media platform, we had to um, address it. And many of you asked me questions about specific pieces of information um, where the evidence wasn't so strong. So I think moving forward, we absolutely have to improve our engagement on social media and all sorts of uh, platforms. We have to make sure that we can clearly and succinctly get out data and information and then what we did in last year's budget was actually fund the Department of Public Health to troll social media for misinformation and combat it with direct responses. So I like to see government do more of that because that I think is going to hopefully for uh, willing listening audiences um, challenge some of that misinformation and help us uh, carry forward. Mm -hmm. um there are two items I wanted to talk about. One is CalAIM. That's another set of initials that we probably should find out about. And the other is the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative. Yeah, so I think many of you... 25 are, words or less. Yes. All right, let's see if I can do it. CalAIM is really uh, the, the substantive transformation of uh, the Medicaid system. It is a different approach. It doesn't sort of use the traditional waiver opportunity through the federal government. It uses a different sort of waiver that California hasn't always utilized. And it's creating a statewide opportunity through our managed care plans to really transform what Medi-Cal delivery looks like. And when you couple that to the managed care re-procurement 
which is really creating a new set of partners and contracts around who's overseeing Medicaid at the local level, you see sort of, to me, a one-two punch that not only focuses on integrating care, not only focuses on improving quality, equity, transparency, but also really takes California to the appropriate next level in addressing the social drivers of health. So things like, how does housing fit into healthcare? How does housing fit into health? How does homelessness, how does transport, lack of transportation, lack of food, lack of uh, things in your house contribute to chronic disease? And, and um, how does the state's investment in those areas actually improve the overall health of populations and the arc of health for our state? So that is, uh, that is a key piece. We're excited to be sort of in, in the throes of getting that implemented, really kicking off some key programs as early as next year, and then over the next few years, uh, evolving our uh, sort of depth of implementation on CalAIM. The Children Youth Behavioral Health Initiative uh, is one of the things I am personally uh, most proud of. I know when I sat down with the governor to take this job before either one of us knew uh, anything about COVID and a global pandemic and many of the things that we've dealt with, we talked about just a couple of things, and one was behavioral health. And for both of us, uh, as parents, as observers of what's going on in our state, there's nothing that we can do more uh, that, that is more important than investing in a true system of care for children and youth for behavioral health issues. And in some ways, we're way behind. We're not further behind than others. But because of stigma, because of the marginalization of behavioral health conditions as it relates to healthcare at large, uh, we have some catch up to do. And what this initiative, the Children Youth Behavioral Health Initiative, an anchor of the governor's master plan for children's behavioral health, um, is, is really saying we can create a system that is universal for all kids, zero to 25, that is anchored in equity, that looks at using some of these virtual tools that we have become better at using during the pandemic, that says we're not just gonna have one standard in Medicaid and let the commercial plans do something else. It's gonna be all of the above. It recognizes the vitality and the importance of schools. Not every school can host every type of service, but schools can be linked with the services in their communities. Um, that that uh, there's, there's you know other components there's a component that is about provider training and making sure that primary care pediatricians like myself and Dr. Pan have resources to support people in our own offices. So it is, frankly, I don't even want to say it's a transformation because there's parts of the system that today just don't exist that we're going to build. And it's going to take some time. It's dependent on a revitalization and transformation of the behavioral health workforce not just more of what we have, but new types of um, workers in the system. So it really is a broad reaching transformation that in my mind is a compact, a promise to generations to come that we're gonna be there for you. We're gonna work on making sure you have a safe place um, that uh, in, in a stigma free way to access the preventative, the wellness, and the severe uh, behavioral health supports that you might need in the future. So to me, it's one of the most exciting things that we've done in HHS in, in the past couple of years.
nobody really knows what's going to happen in November with the midterm elections. But um, if uh, the Democrats lose control of the House, there have been Republicans who said, among other things, they would like to uh, abolish Medicare. So the question I had is not whether that's going to happen or not, but if it did in California, California sort of stepped up after the Affordable Care Act was approved and, and got into it. And I'm wondering if that happened with Medicare, would California, do you think um, California would step up the same way? So that's an easy question. Yeah, easy question. I, I guess this is where I feel we should highlight California's values and not just what we say, but what actually has been done. And when there's a gap and when there's a hole, we strive to fill it. We don't always fill it perfectly. We don't always fill it as quickly as some people want, but there is a great deal of attention that often rises above the politics to fill the needs of real Californians. And I would like to think that if something that I'm going to say egregious occurs. We would, as a state, rally and figure out what we can do and do it as quickly as anyone else. Um, because uh, we know that coverage is not enough, access is not enough, that we need to focus more on quality and equity in all that we do. But between those things, um, people in California can rely on care and services that are life-sustaining, life-altering, and to lose that for so many Californians uh, not only would be a shame, but as a public servant, something we have a responsibility to try to protect against. One thing I wanted to ask earlier was the uh, roller coaster sort of track of the coronavirus, of the pandemic. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, in terms of infections, numbers of infections. And you wonder, are we, in the, are we in a doldrum? Are we at the bottom of the hill? Or is it going to go up in the hill? Does it go down? What is the medical explanation for this up and down? Uh, more of the scientific explanation. Yeah. Well, this is, um, you know, this virus doesn't care who we are, where we are, um, and, and it's going to uh, transform. Uh, these RNA viruses, I like to say, they um, mutate for a living. That's what they do. So the minute we put up a defense, it tries to figure itself out and um, change. And that's why you have seen us run through many therapeutic drugs. Some worked really well a year and a half ago. Today, they don't work at all. You've seen us have to update the boosters and change the configuration to be more modern with what we're seeing transmitted today. So when you're dealing with such a swirly virus, that mutates for a living, of course we're going to see some of our defenses work, see those levels come down, and then as it mutates, see new forms or variants of the virus, we're going to see an uptick. But as we've um, sort of experienced before, granted 100 years ago, you see these cycles of highs and lows, and that over time they start to become, in this case, more uh, uh, endemic, and we uh, deal with them in a more measured way, but with our guard up. And I would say uh, we're definitely at a lower point than we've been at other parts of the pandemic. And who knows if we're going to experience the same pressure and increase in, in uh, uh, infections. 
But I do think that Californians and California as a whole is as prepared as anyone to deal with what is to come. I just had one more question and we'll uh, open it up to the audience if they have any, anything they'd like to ask. Um, it was mentioned in an earlier panel, this notion of punishing doctors who distribute false, knowingly distribute false information. This was specifically in reference to COVID. Um, do you have any thoughts on that one way or the other? Um, so without going too deeply into it, what I would say is um, physicians have an obligation to take care of their individual patients and their communities on a whole. And anytime we do things that um, dishonor that obligation, I think it's worthy of consideration for uh, what that means for uh, that physician and the community at large. What kind of uh, uh, investigation or or uh, uh, consequence to that, I think we'll leave as an open question, but certainly what we can do to discourage those sorts of behaviors, not dissimilar to what we've seen in other forms. You mentioned the whole uh, vaccine conversation that we've had over the last few years. It's not dissimilar, and we're certainly going to have to look at that closely and um, decide if anything sort of more systematic should be, should be done. Okay, fair enough. Thank you so much. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? Would they like to? Anyone in the room have any questions? Or Hi, Kelly Bean with HealthNet. It's kind of more of a personal question, but it was really interesting to see when peak energy usage was up so high and that text went out. So I'm wondering, and then, you know, usage dropped because you had personal responsibility in your hand, right? Is there any, are you guys looking at that as a best practice kind of in the public health space, like getting more people's information, not just the people who proactively sign up under, um, you know, the vaccine information that's disseminated, that would be a good thing to think about maybe. It's, we, we um, first off, that was uh, a consequence that so many were pleased about. Uh, people expected it to have some impact, but not as much as we saw. So the tool and its expansion should be considered in other areas. We haven't specifically considered what you just raised, but I think it's a worthwhile thing for us to, to consider and see how it could be used. But really good question, thank you. Uh, another question about CARE Court. Um, the legal mechanism for representation uh, has been a little fuzzy from the start. Uh, it was originally public defenders and that was impractical because they already have a lot to do. And now it's, I, as I understand it, the governor is, is suggesting a mechanism where the legal aid societies through the state bar will be representing care court clients. Um, and also the support person, the lay support person, are they going to be paid? So with the legal mechanism and the support mechanism. Sure. So um, I think where we are, and um, this is why I stated we are moving firmly into implementation and determining what is going to be the best approach with some of this. I think both options, uh, legal aid attorneys or public defenders in some case, you, you could see different models in different counties. Uh, in terms of the supporter role, the idea is that, um, uh, that certain supports uh, in terms of funding or payment um, do, it doesn't have to include that, that there are other individuals who 
have, uh, have an existing relationship or can really support the, um, uh, the individual, the respondent, in, in a certain way. So I think both moving parts a bit, but the idea that they're anchors to the whole process is, I think, what we're firm on in, in the program. Hi, Secretary Galley, Angela Hart, Kaiser Health News. Um, as you know, um, the state just released its uh, first ever re-procurement contracts for the Medi-Cal managed care plans doing business with California, the private plans. Um, and we're starting to see some infighting between the plans and really some critique of the state's process and making these determinations. And I wonder what you say to that criticism that the state sort of rushed into this process and did it in a way that wasn't necessarily looking at the historical um, background and, and um, progress of plans when it comes to access, when it comes to quality. And then as an add-on to that first point, um, does the state stand behind its decision on the re-procurement contracts, that it, the decision that it made a couple weeks ago? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, we are, as you know, with re-procurements as fresh as this one, that there is a, an appeals process. We've received some appeals and given that, I'm just going to answer your question by saying we have a process that we're undergoing. Uh, some of the issues that you raised are parts of those appeals, and it's going to take some time to sort through those, and then at that time we'll be able to more clearly respond. I will say on the re-procurement, um, this has been a long time coming. We have for a long time uh, just depended on the uh, uh, existing partners uh, that the state hasn't pushed as much um, with the patient, the beneficiary in the center, um, is, I think, a fair critique. And so what the re-procurement does, what Kaleen does, what so many of the things, our comprehensive quality strategy in Medicaid does, is it says we're going to be more demanding of the plans and the providers that are serving Californians. And um, whether you want to say that was done with haste or without full consideration, I think we'll debate that for a while. But the intent of what the procurement, re-procurement does is I've often said these are not contracts. These are compacts. These are agreements to put people first, families first, communities first in very comprehensive ways. And um, I like the idea of lifting all boats here wherever they are. I hope that the elements of transformation that we put into Medicaid are going to allow us to soon look back pretty quickly and say, we lifted all boats. So still more to do on the specifics you asked about, but the intent, I don't think you can do quickly enough. Any more questions? I, d I did have a question. Uh, I know California is moving forward with an effort to produce insulin. And I wonder if you could talk about that process, if there's any estimate on how long that's going to take and talk about the challenges that are going to be presented on that? Yeah, well, first off, um, California has, and from the beginning, the governor laid out what uh, really was a focus on pharmaceuticals as a driver of costs. We've had a pretty comprehensive affordability uh, focus. We just uh, moved forward the Office of Healthcare Affordability. We've looked at uh, the CalRx effort, which is uh, the insulin effort is an anchor to that, uh, and a number of other areas that focus on affordability, um, uh, you know, within Covered California, within our efforts on data exchange. All of these things are pointing us 
at least in part, if not primarily, towards addressing the cost of care. And uh, for when it comes to pharmaceuticals, California said, we have a lot of market power. We're a big state. There are things happening in this space that really shouldn't be happening. People shouldn't have to choose between treating a chronic condition with uh, a medication that is decades old um, and lose their ability to have a car, have a job, live in a home that's safe, uh, eat good and healthy food. Uh, so California's goal, uh, we're in the throes of it now. We have a RFI, a request for information out that we expect to sort of wrap up in the next four to six weeks where we will potentially be in a place to uh, announce uh, a potential partnership with an entity that we would work with to uh, essentially manufacture a California-labeled insulin that would be widely available in California, pharmacies, drugstores, uh, a, a number of other retailers that even if it isn't covered by insurance, would still hopefully be at a price point where it would be more affordable, more accessible, more available in, uh, in a way to that individual to control what is, uh, you know, a life-threatening disease. And if California is successful with that, and I hope and expect we will be, it sort of sets a pathway to do this with other drugs, for other states to consider doing it, hopefully some federal change, but it certainly is taking on a part of the sort of health system that I don't want to say has been untouched, but has not been touched in many successful ways for a long, long time. So it's uh, all part of this affordability uh, agenda and something that I think uh, we should all be excited to see the results of. Another, qu another question. We have another epidemic in this state, in fact, in the world. It's called fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Would you address what the state is doing there? So I think a, a number of things, and just to say... Uh, we have seen incredible success in opioids in general because of the prescribing practices coming down. Um, so what our real foe is today, fentanyl is a major issue for us. And fentanyl um, uh, in the far north part of the state uh, is, uh, uh, is affecting uh, so many individuals that we're seeing the number of deaths from opioids climb uh, double-digit percentages, almost a 100% increase in just the past couple of years. So um, something that we are uh, taking very seriously in terms of investments, even as we're planning uh, for future budgets, how are we going to really focus on fentanyl uh, use, misuse, inadvertent use, um, uh, uh, is going to be a focus. There are a number of programs already in place that are focusing on um, reversal agents availability, emergency room efforts. We aren't doing enough when it comes to education, proactive efforts, and really trying to address things uh, in a more preventative way for young people. So there's some work that's out there today. Uh, I will say not enough because this is a beast that's growing very quickly. And the hope is that in the next many months, in um, uh, next couple of years, we're making the kind of investments that you would expect a state like ours to make in this effort. Well, I think that'll do it. Uh, Mark Alley, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you in the audience for participating. And uh, 
we'll see you next time around. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, welcome to a little feature we call Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? I want to say thank you first to Mark Galley and to our participants viewers at our healthcare conference who are now out of the room. It's just me and Tim Foster, my colleague. And Tim, who had the worst week in your view? Well, uh, I would say it was clearly Sheila Kuehl with a runner-up of Patty Giggins, uh, who had their offices and homes uh, explored with a search warrant uh, yeah. and had uh, materials taken uh, in a, in a sheriff's investigation this week. And to me, that's hard to top on a, on a worst week. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty hard to top that. You know, if you're a public official, especially a major public official in LA County, you're one of the five little Kings they used to call them, maybe five little Queens, they call them now on the LA board, County board of supervisors and your house gets raided, uh, by a sheriff's unit doing a public corruption, doing a corruption investigation. Uh, you got a problem. And her house, Sheila Kuehl, who was known here in Sacramento as one of the straightest arrows ever and one of the smartest politicians up here in the legislature. She was the straightest arrow since Leland Yee. No, just <laughs> yes, it's Leland Yee. Also since Zelda Gilroy in the Dobie Gillis show of the early 60s, which is when I first saw Sheila Kuehl. Anyway, her house gets raided yesterday morning, 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, and apparently... Uh, reporters and others had been tipped off because their um, accounts that clearly show uh, the reporters are there at the scene describing what's happening. Uh, Sheila is, uh, Kuehl is lead, led out of the house barefooted. Uh, she looked a little puffy from sleep. I don't know if she has woken up and let out, but clearly there wasn't a whole lot of time uh, for her to get prepared. The, the sheriff's deputies beat on the door, pounded on the door, demanded to, let, to be let in, and they were. Uh, deputies were videotaping inside the house. They were taking equipment, including, I believe, her cell phone. Uh, the bottom line is there's a criminal investigation, according to the sheriff's department, that links Kuehl in some fashion to contracts that went to a friend of hers, Patty Giggins, who runs a nonprofit, and that got at least 800000 and maybe more um, dollars worth of contracts between 2014 and 2020. What role, if any, Sheila Kuehl had, we don't know. The sheriff's department is investigating. A superior court judge approved the raid, uh, signed the warrant that uh, allowed the deputies to, to go in. Which should be noted, a year ago, the corruption unit, the sheriff's corruption unit, went to a judge and wanted to, or went to the county DA and wanted to have uh, a go-ahead to go in at that time. The DA refused, saying he didn't see the evidence. This time, the county DA knew nothing about this raid taking place, according to the county DA, which was reported in the LA Times. It's kind of a mess, and we don't know where it's going. Part of this clearly is LA politics. The sheriff is in deep water in terms of his public image and uh, issues in LA. Uh, people are very, very suspicious of the raid, um, and we'll go from there. I don't know. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I'm not enough of an expert on LA politics to exactly understand all of the background, but I know that Kuehl has been one of the drivers of the investigation into his department and his behavior, and he's up for election this year. So does that play a role in here? There's a lot going on. I, and I frankly, 
again, I wish I wish we had Rob Crinky here to talk talk with us. Or, you well, know, sure. someone someone who knew uh, knows LA politics really inside now to to kind of give us some of the backstory. But I, I feel like there's a lot going on here. I, I will be very curious to see how this plays out in the last few months. I thought it was really interesting that the sheriff uh, at a press conference, I think it was yesterday or maybe this morning, said likened uh, Kuhl's response to former President Trump's response when his uh, his Mar-a-Lago estate was was raided by the FBI. And I thought, you know, that had to be intentional. You know, uh, sure. maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just a little suspicious, but I thought, you know, this whole thing is just very weird. I think it's really weird that they went around the DA's office, but who knows, you know, uh, is this a case of where there's smoke, there's fire, or is this just purely a political attack? I don't, I don't know. I don't, we'll find out, I suppose. Tim, that's a great idea about Rob Karinke. Let's get him back up here and have him explain all this stuff to me. My, my impression of L.A. lately has been what a swamp hole of political malfeasance and corruption. I'm sure it's not true. Uh, I'm only repeating. Lost, uh, all of our L.A. Uh, listeners have just hung up and discussed. Yeah, they just hung up. Yeah, I don't blame them. Uh, you know, speaking of, uh, she, you know, this, you know, who had was on track to have the worst week. Uh, was Karen Bass, the candidate for Los Angeles mayor, who sort of got swept up in this uh, USC corruption thing because she had 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 her degree. She didn't have to pay for it. And this was part of a program they had with public officials. And I'm not sure at all that she did anything wrong and may have been totally fine. But given that USC has had so many problems with this, uh, her name came up and she was getting some bad press earlier in the week. Maybe this is a great week for her because now this whole thing with Sheila Kuehl has just wiped that away. No one will remember it next week. So yep, uh, absolutely. You know, what is it? It's, the, it's an ill wind that blows no good. So, you know, Karen Bass is like. <laughs> great. Tim Foster, thank you so much. Uh, this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around and we'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.